We have uh, three more messages in Romans, in Romans 16. Um, this morning I'd like to read uh, Romans 16, 1 through 16, and then I'm going to skip 17 to 20 and come back to that next week, but then 21 to 23 uh, is kind of uh, fits in with the theme of this morning, so I'm going to cover those as well. And then uh, on a third week, we'll wrap up the book there from verse 25 to the end. There should be an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both uh, exits you can access and online as well are the printed and audio messages. So um, feel free to take advantage of those. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom... Not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Eponidas, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who are also in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apellus, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphana and Trephosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man, or literally a chosen man in the Lord, and also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philogelus, and Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Jumping down to verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius, and Jason, and Sosipater, and my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. And most early manuscripts um, omit verse 24, which is virtually identical with the end of verse 20. So probably that was not in the original. Well, when you come to a section of Scripture like the one we've just read, um, I think it's important to keep in mind Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and especially the first word of verse 16, 
all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so the verses we've just read and maybe the long genealogies that you just read in your quiet time, you do read them, don't you? Uh, those genealogies are inspired by God and are profitable for our uh, spiritual growth to equip us for every good work. And so rather than just skimming them and going, ho-hum, let's move on, I think that they deserve a little more careful look and for us to ask the question, well, what spiritual food for my soul is in these rather difficult to understand why they're in Scripture kinds of verses? And you have to dig a bit, but I think when you do, you come up with some nuggets that make the uh, effort worthwhile. Now, Paul, of course, is not deliberately teaching us here. What he's doing is giving greetings to his friends in Rome and sending greetings from the friends who were with him in Corinth to the fellow believers in Rome. And yet, at the same time, I think we have to say, based on 2 Timothy 3, that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these verses because there is instruction in them for our spiritual profit. And uh, what we have here is a little snapshot, if you will, of the early church, of the church in Rome and of the church in Corinth. And it teaches us a lot about what our church here ought to be. And the individual portraits also can uh, instruct us and motivate us and encourage us to be all that God wants us to be as well. And so what we learn here is that the church is made up of ordinary and yet diverse people, people who know the Lord, people who are growing in the Lord, and uh, people who serve Him, and people who love one another. Now, I'm not going to be able to comment on every single name. In fact, we don't know much about some of the names, except that's the name. Uh, but I want to uh, lay out for you seven features of this snapshot, kind of looking at it as you would at a photo from different angles and saying, did you notice this? And, and look at that feature of that photo. But before I do, let me point out that this, this um, text dispels the notion that Paul was some kind of a stuffy, academic, non-relational theologian who sat around uh, writing these hard-to-understand documents that scholars care about, but that Paul didn't love people. I think these verses are brimming with the love that Paul has for these various people. He knew many of these saints in Rome by name, even though he's yet to visit Rome. Uh, some of them he knew, as we'll see, very closely. And so the chapter is just brimming with the love of personal relationships. And Paul, I think, is quintessential as a theologian who loved people, and that's the best kind of theologian, because all of the Bible is about relationships, is it not? Loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor, one another, as ourselves. 
So let's look at the snapshot. Uh, the first thing I would point out is that the church is made up of ordinary, diverse people who are in the Lord. Uh, Paul begins and commends to the Romans, verse 1, our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea. Uh, most uh, scholars believe that Phoebe was the one who physically carried the letter that we have as the letter to the Romans from Corinth to Rome and safely delivered it into the hands of the church there. She was probably a single, fairly wealthy uh, businesswoman. You'll notice that Paul says she is a helper, has been a helper of many. And that word means a patroness or a benefactor. And then Paul even adds, and even of myself as well. Apparently she had uh, given Paul some financial support. Uh, her name comes from Greek mythology, and so I think we can safely infer that she was saved out of a pagan Gentile background. In fact, the majority of the names in uh, the verses we read are Gentile, which shows the largely Gentile makeup of the church in Rome. And we also know that the majority of the names are those of slaves or freedmen. Freedmen were former slaves who got their freedom somehow. Uh, some in the list may have been a part of Caesar's household. You remember when Paul went to Rome and he wrote the, the letter to the Philippians, he said, those in Caesar's household greet you. Well, who might that have been? Well, we have here the household of um, Aristobulus in verse 10. Aristobulus was a grandson of Herod the Great, the Herod who slaughtered off the infants of um, Bethlehem. He was a close friend of the Emperor Claudius. He was not a believer. But when he died, his slaves would have become the possession of the emperor. And so uh, they would rightly be referred to as the household of Aristobulus, but they would be a part of the royal um, larger household. Uh, the next name, Herodian, probably refers to a Jewish slave who, or maybe a freedman who was part of that larger household of Aristobulus, now in the emperor's service. And then in verse 11, we have the household of Narcissus. Again, Narcissus uh, was a wealthy, wicked, notoriously wicked freedman. He was also friends with the Emperor Claudius, but as you know, when emperors change hands, friends become enemies. And so when Nero took the throne, Nero's aggressive and dominant mother, Agrippina, forced Narcissus to commit suicide, probably about four or five years before the letter to Romans, the Romans was penned. And so um, his slaves, again, would have become the property of Nero. And so these people now are in Nero's uh, royal household. Uh, then down, jumping down to the um, greetings from Corinth to Rome in verse 22, this fellow Tertius was Paul's secretary. He had the very important job of writing down Paul's dictation word for word, and um, it's what we have as the original manuscript. We don't have the original now, but it was the original manuscript of uh, Romans. And then there's another man, Quartus, 
in verse 23, who is called the brother, and he was probably a slave. Tertius means third, and Quartus means fourth. So these guys didn't even have names. You know, you're slave number three, you're slave number four. They weren't even number one and two. Uh, they were down the pecking order somewhere. And yet, um, in Christ, now they're members of the church. Tertius has this very important job of writing down this letter accurately. And uh, Quartus now has a new name. He's the brother. You know, what a great title. He's the brother. And... Um, So they are now in the family of God. And then in the same breath, Paul mentions Erastus, the city treasurer. That would have been a very important job in Corinth, which was a major city in that day. Uh, Interestingly, there's been an inscription that archaeologists found in Corinth of a certain Erastus who was a public works administrator. Now, It could well be the same man, either an earlier or later position that he held. At this point, he was the city treasurer. Um, But the point is this. In the church in Corinth, you've got third and fourth, who are kind of low-level slaves. And you've got Erastus, who is like a well-known public official. But they're all together brothers in Christ. And then in verse 3, we see uh, Prisca and Aquila, who were fellow tent makers with Paul, uh, fellow Jews as well. Um, And when Paul refers throughout the chapter, verse 7, verse 11, and verse 21, to my kinsmen, he probably means fellow Jews. Uh, Not that they were blood relatives in the the close sense, but they they were Jewish believers. And As we saw in Romans 14 and 15, there were some very real racial tensions in the church in Rome between the Gentile segment and the Jewish segment. And it was Paul's heartfelt desire and effort that that would uh, not cause any division, but that they would grow together as one body in Christ. There's one other man in this uh, list, probably a Jew, and that's in verse 13, Rufus. Rufus is also mentioned in Mark chapter 15 and verse 21. Mark says that the father of Rufus was Simon the Cyrene. Do you remember Simon the Cyrene? Jesus is bearing his cross. He, he collapses under it because he is totally wiped out from being scourged and, and beaten and everything else. And the Roman soldiers conscript a man who's a bystander, Simon of Cyrene, and say, you over here, carry the cross. And through that, um, Rufus's father, who was a Jew probably from Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya on the north coast of Africa, he was visiting Jerusalem for the Passover, and coincidence, which is no such thing, it's a God incidence, But in the providence of God, he is there. He gets conscripted to carry the cross of Jesus. Through that, he comes to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And when Luke writes the the book of Acts, he mentions that when the gospel first went to Antioch, it was taken by certain men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Who knows, but maybe uh, Simon of Cyrene took the gospel up to Antioch, planted the church there. That's where Paul and Barnabas 
were first sent out on their missionary journeys. And as a result of that, of course, you and I are here today through a chain of events because the gospel went into Europe. But it's all very interesting that, um, you know, uh, that Rufus was the son then of this Simon of Cyrene. And by the way, Mark wrote his gospel uh, in Rome for the Romans. And so that's why I think we can safely connect the Rufus in Romans 15, who Mark mentions uh, when he says Simon of Cyrene, he, in parentheses, he says, the father of Rufus and Alexander, like everybody knows Rufus here in Rome. So it's probably the same man. Now, we don't know why Paul singles him out as the New American Standard translates it a choice man in the Lord, but I think the ESV has chosen in the Lord, which is the literal Greek, um, because, of course, every Christian is chosen in the Lord. Um, John Piper has an interesting speculation. He says maybe Paul and Rufus sat down and had a long talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And so Paul mentions that to spark Rufus on, yes, that wonderful truth. Um, also, I would maybe offer the speculation Maybe Paul and, and Rufus had talked about what a marvelous providence of God it was that his father was the one out of that crowd that was chosen to carry the cross. And because he carried the cross, he came to Christ. And now Rufus was in Christ. And so perhaps again, he just wants to remind him, you were chosen by the Lord, Rufus. We don't know. But anyway, the point here is, the church in Rome was made up of these somewhat ordinary and yet very diverse people. Some of them were slaves on the low rung of the social uh, spectrum. Some of them, like um, Aquila and Priscilla, were blue-collar workers. They were tent makers. Then you have some, like um, Phoebe and, uh, and uh, others, who were um, probably upper class, fairly wealthy people, um, well off, and yet they're all together in the church. And you have to ask, well, what drew them together? What bonded them together? And it's fairly obvious when you read this text, as maybe you caught as I was reading it, Paul repeats a phrase 11 times. Did you catch it? The phrase is, in the Lord or in Christ. Um, Let's go through and, and I'll show them to you. Verse 2. Receive Phoebe, he says, in the Lord. And then in verse 3. Prisca and Aquila are his fellow serv or workers in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 7. Andronicus and Junius were in Christ before me. And then in verse 8. Ampliatus is my beloved in Christ the Lord. Verse 9, Urbanus is our fellow worker in Christ. Uh, verse 10, Apellus is the approved in Christ. Uh, we don't know why he was approved. Maybe he had gone through some very difficult trial and, and uh, had come through in faith. And then Paul sends greetings in verse 11 to those of Nars the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Verse 12, Tryphena and Tryphosa are workers in the Lord. Verse 12 as well, Persis, the beloved, has worked hard in the Lord. 
Verse 13, Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And then in verse 22, Paul's secretary, Tertius, sends his greetings in the Lord. So 11 times, just so you didn't miss it, Paul just hammers this home. And as we saw in our earlier study of Romans, that is the most important thing that could be said of you or me or of any person. That you're in the Lord. That you're in Christ Jesus. Because we saw in Romans 8, remember how he began that great chapter? Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are, here it is, in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, you're free from the fear of judgment. What a wonderful thing. And that whole chapter is so wonderful, but then he ends it on the crescendo at the end of Romans 8.39 by saying that nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so whether you're wealthy or you're poor or whether you're ordinary or maybe you hold a very important position or whether you're male or female or whatever your background is, It doesn't matter as long as you're in Christ Jesus through faith in Him. That is the most wonderful truth in the New Testament. And it's just a great tribute to the glorious gospel, isn't it? That God saves people from every spectrum of life, every racial background, every conceivable home background, Uh, There are some who are notorious sinners, some who were self-righteous Pharisees like Paul, and yet they are all joined together because of one glorious fact. When you trust in Christ, you become in Christ. And uh, that is the the wonderful truth. So that's the first thing to note, that, um, that we have this the church that is made up of these people, who are from all kinds of different backgrounds, some of them ordinary, some of them extraordinary people, but the common thread is they're all in the Lord. Secondly, as we look at this snapshot, notice that the church is made up of ordinary people who are growing to know the Lord through sound doctrine. It is significant that even though Romans is undoubtedly the most doctrinally deep letter in the New Testament, It was written to these people. These people we've just been looking at. Common, ordinary, some of them slaves. And it was written to help them grow to know Christ. Uh, Leon Morris makes a, a, a great observation. He says, It was a letter to real people, and as far as we can see, to ordinary people. It was not written to professional theologians, although through the centuries, scholars have found the epistle a happy hunting ground. Uh, As we consider, he says, the weighty matters Paul deals with, we are apt to overlook the fact that it was addressed to people like Ampliatus and Trophina and Rufus. Clearly, Paul expected that kind of person to be helped by what he wrote, a fact which modern experts sometimes overlook. Now, I bring this up because we live in a day where commonly in evangelical circles, doctrine is despised. It is set aside for one of two reasons. Well, it's divisive. 
That's one argument. Or it's impractical. You know, give me the practical stuff. And people who say that fail to notice that Paul spends 11 chapters laying down this solid doctrinal foundation before he finally comes around to the so-called practical section, you know, of, therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, and so on. But my point is this. Doctrine is very practical, and it lays a solid foundation that will enable you to apply Scripture to your life. And it's not just for theologians and scholars. And so, I would challenge you, if you've never done so, in this year, go over to the book table and pick the most doctrinal book you can find. And by God's grace, decide you're going to work through it. It is work. But as you pray and wrestle with these things, uh, it will uh, have rich dividends in your life. So deepen your doctrinal roots in the Lord. Uh, The third thing to note about this snapshot is that the church is made up of diverse people who are deepening their relationships with one another in the Lord. Uh, There are over 30 names in these uh, two sections that I read, and probably Paul knew most of them by name. He mentions four of them as being especially close. He calls them my beloved or the beloved, verse 5, verse uh, 8, verse 9, verse 12. And in verse 5, it's Eponidas, and Paul throws in, he was the first convert to Christ from Asia. In other words, he was the first one when Paul went into what is modern western Turkey, the first one to respond to the gospel. And there he is in Rome going on with the Lord. What a great joy to Paul to think, you know, that labor was not in vain. Uh, He mentions Phoebe and he calls her our sister. And as I said, Quartus is the brother. And he mentions in verse 13, Rufus's mother and adds that she's like a mother to, to me, to Paul. Apparently she administered to Paul as a mother would. Maybe when Paul was sick, she came and and stayed by his bedside and fed him chicken soup. I don't know, but nursed him back to health somehow. But Paul loved her as his own mother. Um, Prisca and Aquila, he says, risked their lives for me. If you've ever had anyone who risked their lives to save you, there's a bond there, isn't there? You know, you just know that person cared enough to to risk their own life to, to rescue me. Uh, We don't know what they did. It might have been in Ephesus when the riot was going on. We don't know. Um, Then Paul mentions down in verse 16, uh, directs them to greet one another with a holy kiss. And as you probably know, that was a common thing in that culture. Again, it was probably men to men, women to women. It was not um, cross-gender kind of kissing. You've seen maybe Russians where they kind of greet each other and kiss each other on both cheeks, you know, that sort of thing. I I would caution you to be careful about um, greeting the opposite sex with too physical of a greeting. Um, It is a holy kiss, not a sensual kiss. And so it was uh, a lot maybe like in our culture, our time to meet and greet one another. Um, But all of these warm personal greetings in this chapter just show the love that existed between Paul and these believers. And let me point out, he knew their names. 
You know, I, I meet a lot of people, and I am one of them, who say, man, I just have a struggle remembering names. Okay, welcome to the club, especially as you get older. Your computer needs more memory, but um, <clears throat> work at it. Just work at it, because people know you care when you learn their name. And uh, I have to write them down, to be honest. I mean, after I meet you, if you're new, if you see me writing something, I'm writing your name down before I forget it. And I put them on my desk, and then I can pray through those names throughout the week and cement in my mind, you know, um, maybe who they are if I'm lucky. But um, sometimes during the song time, I'm sitting here and I see someone, and I think, oh, my goodness, I know I met them four times, and I can't remember their name. And uh, so that's common, but just work at, at remembering names. And the point is, we're not called to be Christians in isolation, but in relation. Now, some of you, I know, have been burned. You, you've opened yourself up to a fellow Christian, and they just kind of knifed you in the back. That happened to Paul. He mentioned several in Second Timothy who had hurt him. But that didn't hinder him from pursuing knowing God's people and loving them on a close basis. The fourth thing about this snapshot is then it's related to the third thing. The church is made up of people who are family. And thus they're hospitable and they're um, helpful toward one another. As I say, Paul encourages the church to extend hospitality to Phoebe, to receive her in a manner worthy of the saints, helping her in whatever she has need of you. Uh, he calls her his sis, our sister. Uh, Cordus, as I said, was brother. These are family. And uh, Prisca and Aquila had opened their home uh, to the church. Paul mentions, greet the church that's in their house. When they moved to Ephesus, they did the same thing. They had a church in their house in Ephesus. When you get down to verse 14, and Paul mentions these people and then says, and the brethren with them, and then the same thing in verse 15, the saints who are with them, probably those represent other house churches that met in Rome. And then down in verse 23, Gaius was host not only to Paul, he probably gave Paul lodging, but to the whole church. So there was a church meeting in the house of Gaius as well. Um, as you may know, for the first two centuries, the church met in homes because of persecution. Uh, that may be where the church in Nigeria is moving toward because the uh, Islamists are blowing up churches uh, practically every week in Nigeria. But they had to go underground and meet in homes. And um, there's a renewed interest in the United States on house churches. I, the other day I was surfing around on something, looking for something on the web, and one of the links I went on was a whole network of house churches, and they were arguing for the benefit of them. There are some advantages to house churches. Uh, um, they have the advantage, of course, of building close relationships. They have the advantage of uh, closer shepherding, where the elders can know what's going on in the people's lives. They involve every member in ministry in a, a greater way. But they also have some disadvantages. Often they lack solid teaching because the leaders are not that grounded in the Word. 
They can get off track doctrinally if the leaders aren't uh, aware of things. Uh, they can spawn relational conflicts because when you get that close, friction often happens. And so there can be those kinds of conflicts in house churches. Uh, also, they can become ingrown. And that's often happened where they lose their focus on outreach. And of course, a house only holds so many. So when you get to a certain size, they have to divide and, and uh, grow or they're going to die. Um, I will add, our home fellowships provide all of the advantages, and I must warn you, the disadvantages of house churches. Uh, but I think they are worth the effort to get involved in them. And if you're not in one and you'd like to be, see Pastor Stan, and he'll try to <clears throat> plug you into one that may meet near your home. Um, I, I do think that that is very important, especially with two services here, and there are people you just can't get to know on Sunday morning. You can build into their lives in a home fellowship. A fifth thing about this um, snapshot I would point out is that the church is made up then of people who work hard in the Lord. And Paul repeatedly mentions how these people were involved in serving the Lord. Notice Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sincrea. Sincrea was a port city about seven miles from Corinth down on the harbor. Um, she may have been an official deaconess. Some think she was. Some scholars dispute that. But it's interesting, even though she was probably very busy as a single businesswoman uh, supporting herself and so on, she was committed to being a servant in that local church. Uh, Paul calls Prisca and Aquila in verse 3, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. As you know, Paul met them in Corinth. Uh, the emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jews from Rome and forced them out of Rome. So uh, Priscilla and Aquila had lived in Rome. They moved to Corinth. Paul met them there. They mended tents together there. Um, they went with Paul over to Ephesus. Paul left Ephesus. They stayed on. There was a young man who was a very gifted preacher but needed a little bit of doctrinal knowledge named Apollos. And Priscilla and Aquila took him aside, got him straightened out on his doctrine. Later, they moved back to Rome, which is where they are now as Paul is writing. And then we know from Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy um, that they had moved back to Ephesus again. So they moved all over. But wherever they went, their heart was for ministry. They had churches in their home. And, you know, it's just to say, husbands and wives, you can serve together. And there's great joy in doing that. I would add, though, husbands, if, if you have a home fellowship in your home, help your wife. <laughs> it shouldn't just be her thing, you know. Learn to run a vacuum. Uh, learn to clean up the kitchen. Those are very practical ministries that are required when you have a group of people in your home. But uh, these people were workers. Then in verse 6, he mentions Mary. We don't know who she was, but she worked hard for you. And in verse 9, Urbanus, he calls our fellow worker, Trophina and Trophosa. They were probably sisters. Their names in English mean uh, delicate and dainty. <laughs> And there may be kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing with Paul when he says they're not so delicate and dainty because they're workers 
in the Lord. Um, and then Persis, same verse, was another woman, and she has worked hard in the Lord. And then in verse, excuse me, verse 21, Timothy, of course, was Paul's fellow worker. Um, so all these people were workers. <clears throat> we saw back in um, <clears throat> Romans 12, <clears throat> excuse me, Romans 12, that uh, each one, if you're a member of Christ, you've got a spiritual gift. And God has given you something to do to serve Him. And there's no bench warmers in the body. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 say it like this, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then he breaks all the gifts down into two categories. Whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So, to review then, the church is made up of ordinary diverse people who are in, in Christ, in the Lord, and these people are growing to know the Lord through sound doctrine, such as the letter to the Romans. And uh, they're deepening their relationships with one another. They're being hospitable and helpful to one another as family. And then they're working hard together for the Lord. The sixth observation is that the church is made up of both men and women who serve the Lord, but they're in different roles and capacities. I think it's significant that in the male-dominated culture of that day, Paul mentions four women who he says worked hard in the Lord. And then he mentions Prisca, who along with her husband Aquila were fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And it's significant, isn't it, that Paul entrusted what was probably the only copy. I don't know if he had a backup copy. Um, but this was probably the only copy of this precious letter to the Romans, and he gives it to a woman and says, make sure that gets to the church in Rome, and he entrusts Phoebe with this great ministry. All in all, Paul mentions seven women by name here, and then he mentions Rufus's mother, whom he doesn't name, and Nerus's sister, whom he doesn't name. But obviously, Paul believed that women have a significant role to play in ministry in the local church. At the same time, though, we need to heed what Douglas Moo warns against. He says, be careful not to overinterpret this evidence. Um, <clears throat> we have those in evangelical circles um, that are, I think there's an organization called Christians for Equality or something like that. Basically, they're saying, Women can do anything and everything men can do. They can be senior pastors of churches. They can be on elder boards, etc. There are no distinctions. And they use texts like the one we've been looking at at least two ways to uh, argue for their cause. First of all, they bring up Prisca, who is uh, mentioned before her husband. And... Um, <clears throat> And they argue that 
In four out of six references in the New Testament, she is mentioned first. Um, By the way, I I forgot to mention that um, Paul calls her Prisca. That's kind of like Elizabeth. It's the formal name. Luke calls her Priscilla. That'd be like Liz, the nickname, you know, the diminutive. So just in case you're wondering the difference. Prisca is the more formal name. Luke is a little more familiar in calling her Priscilla. Uh, We don't know why she's listed first, to be honest. Maybe she was the more gifted. Maybe she was more dominant personality-wise. Maybe she was the more socially prominent from a higher class family than Aquila. Uh, Maybe she took the lead in their home ministry uh, of organizing things. We don't know uh, why she's listed first four out of six times. The second thing they bring up is verse 7, and that's the name Junius. Now, scholars for centuries have debated Is it a man or a woman? Uh, Because the name can be masculine or feminine. And uh, today most scholars think it's probably the wife of Andronicus. It says that she and her husband are outstanding among the apostles. Now that can mean one of two things. It can mean the apostles all think very highly of them. Or it can mean among those who are apostles... They're at the top of the pile. They're outstanding apostles. Uh, I would point out that if that's the case, the second is the case, then Paul is using the word apostle in a very general sense to refer to those who are sent out, that's the meaning of the word, sent out as traveling missionaries or evangelists. And so this husband and wife team apparently were, like many of the couples we send out from our church, they were missionaries. Um, I would just point out that those who try to build a case for feminism on these two women are taking two fairly obscure situations that we don't know answers to, and they're using it to controvert the very clear thing Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and 1 Timothy 2, and that is that men are to take the leadership uh, in the local church, and of course, Ephesians 5, in the home. Uh, and so, to me, that is just bad principles of biblical exposition or, or exegesis. You don't build a case on some obscure things here and there and then throw out the very clear teaching in these other passages. If you're interested in more on that, we have a statement on the church website under what we believe and how we have wrestled through the role of women in ministry. But it seems to me Paul's very clear teaching other men and leading in the local church is the role of men, but that does not despise women. John Piper has a little book, What's the Difference? And he lists dozens of ministries that women can participate in and do in the local church. One final observation then, and that is that the church is made up of whole families that have come to faith in Christ through the gospel. We've seen that Paul mentions two households, the household of Aristobulus and that of... um, uh, the other one there, Uh, Narcissus, verse 11, and uh, that would include biological members, it would also include just all the slaves, 
But then he mentions Rufus's mother, so here's a father or a mother's son, and maybe the father as well, as I mentioned, who are in the Lord. He mentions Nerus's sister in verse uh, 13 or 15. And when you go to the book of Acts, it's very common to see whole households coming to the Lord. Cornelius brings Peter in, and he preaches to the extended household of Cornelius, and they come to faith. Lydia and her household believe. The Philippian jailer and his household believe. And uh, I think Stan last week mentioned a concept that's familiar to those of you in our home fellowships. Pastor Tom Mercer over in California wrote a book called 8 to 15. And um, in that book, he argues, I think very uh, uh, well, that all of us have about 8 to 15 people that we know. They may be immediate family members, extended family members, just people you rub shoulders with every day, and many of those people don't know the Lord. Well, guess what? That's your mission field. Those are the ones you should be praying for. Make a list of their names. Begin to pray that they'll come to salvation. And look out, because you may be the agent. You may be the one that God will use someday as they make a comment to move in with the good news of Christ. And uh, so that, I think, comes through here as well, that we need to be uh, reaching out to those that God has brought into our lives with the good news of Christ. Now, it's significant that none of these people in Romans 16 would have gone down in history except that the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write these greetings. And so they didn't know that their names would be forever enshrined in Scripture, translated into thousands of languages for believers down through the thousands of years to read about and wonder, hey, I wonder who they are and we'll meet them in heaven someday. But I think even though they were not uh, famous, they were just ordinary folks, here's the significant thing. God knew their name. And you know what? He knows your name. And if He's called you to Himself, He's got a significant purpose for your life in His kingdom. Uh, he sent His Son to rescue you from sin and judgment. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, God still is at work just by the fact that you're here and hearing this message. And He's reaching out, calling out to you, saying, come to Christ. Come to Christ. And He'll give you a role to serve. It may be a significant role as a mother and a homemaker. Greet Rufus and his mother and mine. What a significant role that is. To rear children, to model for them Christ, to bring your kids to know Christ so that they follow the Savior. Or as a man, to be a, a godly and loving husband an example to your kids of integrity, to guide them in the ways of the Lord. What a significant ministry. Of course, it may involve serving somehow in the local church or in outreach to your neighborhood and explaining to your neighbors how Christ can forgive their sins and they can go to heaven. But whatever your gifts and calling, the most important thing is that you know Christ that you know that you're in Him, that there's no condemnation now because you're in Christ Jesus, and then that you look for ways that you can serve Him. And as you read through these descriptions, the, the question pops up, 
how would Paul have described you? And how would he have described me if he was writing a letter from the church in Flagstaff to another location? And William Barclay gives this observation. He says, it's a great thing to go down in history as the man with the open house or as the man with the brotherly heart. Someday people will sum us up in one sentence. What will that sentence be? Father, I pray that you would uh, use these somewhat seemingly impractical words in Scripture and yet words that really are very practical in each of our hearts and lives. I would ask if any are here without the Savior that you would draw them into your family, that they would leave today believing in Christ and be in Christ for time and eternity. I pray if there are any of your saints here who are drifting and purposeless that you would call them back to ground themselves in the truths of Romans and that they would see that you've called them for a purpose in Christ. I pray that you would build and knit our church family together in love, that we would be serving one another and caring for one another and calling each other to go on with the Lord and that this church would be known in Flagstaff as a group who are of people who are in Christ and who love one another and who are growing to know you. So use this word, Lord, from your word in each of our hearts and lives for Jesus' sake. Amen.